Now, the first thing in my mind is he was ambushing me. He was waiting for me. But the second thing in my mind, I can't breathe. Can growing up in the wrong neighborhood force you into a life of violence and crime? For Silverio Strong, that is just about what happened to him. I recorded this episode with him in December of 2019. I decided to put it out right now because with everything going on in the world, I think it gives such an interesting glimpse into what it can be like to just have grown up in a place where there's violence all around you, where there's crime all around you, and finding yourself, no matter how pure of a person you are, getting sucked into all of that. Now, this story does have a happy ending because Silverio has made an amazing transformation, as you will see, but he tells it all today. He gets deep into the nitty gritty of his growing up, what that led to, a lot of the things that he did that he now regrets, but most importantly, the lessons he's discovered that have allowed him to not only become a fully recovered and reformed person with his own business, but helping other people who are incarcerated right now heal from their past and make the changes to have their own amazing lives. It's coming up right now. Thanks for being here, man. So my mind seems to expand every time you and I talk. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited to have you on the show today to share your story. I know you've had a life, some wild experiences. Where'd you yes. grow up? I grew up in, I actually grew up in Sacramento, California. Okay. But I was born in Chicago, Illinois. We moved around a lot. For me, growing up became difficult because I was always trying to find a place to fit in. You know, having a childhood memory in Chicago, then Los Angeles, then Sacramento. I was always trying to find myself because I felt like we kept moving. As we moved around a lot, when I was in a primary school, we finally settled in, in a, a neighborhood in Sacramento that I grew up in. Now, before we settled in this neighborhood, all of the properties that we lived in were surrounding this neighborhood but we finally moved into the heart of this neighborhood and settled in. And for me, it's where everything started to go downhill with the choices that I was making, with the people that I associated myself with. And um, those influences were very impactful in my life because I enjoyed what they were doing. I really liked it. So I began to make those choices, but I was still finding my way. I didn't have the identity of a street lifestyle or a certain mentality that these other people had. So the elders that grew up in my community, they took a liking to me because of my father. Okay. And were they your father's age or were they a little younger than him but older than you? Some of them were my father's age. Some of them were younger. Okay. But they took a liking to me. So I became uh, an errand boy for them. Okay. And I would run errands for them. And they were doing <clears throat> not they good were, stuff? They were selling drugs, uh, running card games, you mm -hmm. know, just all type of different illegal activities, anything to hustle to make a dollar. Gotcha. You know, and it was normal. 
we didn't see anything wrong with it. Even as children, we was like, we didn't know that they're selling drugs. We just were like, they're making some money. That's life. Yeah. And it just was, it was normal because you see this in all the communities that we're, we're living in. So, you know, it was just normal. We really didn't know right from wrong in this area. You understood, but you didn't really know, mm. you know. So the influence that, the influence that I had over children my age gave me a reputation with these elders who took a liking to me because they seen it. I got all these little young kids around here following me. Mm, how so old were you at this point? I was, I was about nine years okay. old, uh -huh. you know, when, when this transition began to make a shift. Okay. I was about nine years old because, you know, we had our, we had our little neighborhood crew of, you know, five or six little boys and maybe two girls. We all had bikes and we all went to the park and we did, we played together and, you know, everything we did was together. Yeah. But the elders noticed that they responded well to me. Okay. If I gave an order, if I told them something, well, I didn't think of it then as an order, but if I gave them an, an, an instruction and asked them to do something, it was done. So um, these elders began to influence me more and more, the more I hung around them. So I began to incorporate that with my friends, the behaviors that I would learn from them and mimic from them, the, the elders, I would incorporate it with my friends. And sometimes I would put a little twist on it to make it my own, but I would incorporate it from them. And as I began to do that, it gave me an identity. And give me an example of something they'd have you do. The elders would tell me to take a package of some controlled substance, ride my bike and go down to the liquor store when I get down to the liquor store, identify somebody, go back around to the liquor store, put it in a certain area, come back out, get the individual's attention again, and let them go back there, and you watch their back while they do it. Mm. Okay. Now, me being a child, I did. I was like, "What is this? Is cloak and dagger? Yeah. What am I doing here?" Yeah. But to them, it made sense. To them, it made identify this individual so that this individual is not being watched by the police. Got so it was it. all about secrecy. Okay. And when I began to understand that, I would take it back to my individuals and I say, hey, we're going in the steel store, steal some gum. Okay, you go up by the front counter, you sit there and distract them. Mm. You fall on the ground and you know what I'm saying, to say your eye and scream real loud and everybody's gonna look at your attention. You grab the gum and then we're gonna walk out the back door. Oh wow, so you were orchestrating these things at age but, nine because you learned it. Because I'm learning wow. these behaviors from them and I'm actually, it's trial and error with the guys I'm hanging around with. But I'm learning this from them because I'm really intrigued on their lifestyle. They, they make it look so fashionable. I mean, it's like a, a, a mob scene in the, in the movies. They make it look so fashionable. But then when you're actually in that life and you're like, this is not that exciting. But they made it appeal that way. So it became yeah. appealing to me yeah. growing up trying to find my identity. So this set the, set the stage for me with the choices that I would soon make. But there was one choice in particular. Um, when I was age 11 years old, 
I had an elder cousin move down from Los Angeles and he was a gang member and he moved into my neighborhood where we were living and I wasn't identified as a gang member or anything, but I knew all the guys in the community. They were definitely gang members and they were the opposite gang member from my cousin. Mm. So that was a rivalry. So when my cousin came down and he came to the fam, I mean to the house, of course he's spending time with family. He's not coming in another gang neighborhood trying to yeah. set territory. Yeah. That wasn't what this was about. He was just visiting. But an individual that grew up in my neighborhood, he was older than me. He was much older than me. He seen this guy and seen he was a rival and he approached him. Mm. And when he approached him, my cousin met him with the challenge. You know, we can go on the street and we can brawl. And the guy in my neighborhood, he didn't, he didn't want that problem. He declined. But he had sworn that he was going to get my cousin. So about two days later, maybe it was the next day, we're on our way to school, me and my little brother. You know what I'm saying? We're riding on our bike together. And... um. I found out later that it was another brother there that was present. I just didn't remember him. That memory was suppressed, but it was the, it was another brother there, another younger brother. Mm. And this individual jumps out from behind a parked truck. It was a parked like Scooby-Doo van. And he jumps out from behind the van and he swings and hits me with all my might. Now, the first thing in my mind is, he was ambushing me. He was waiting for me. But the second thing that was in my mind, I can't breathe. I'm like, he, he hit me in my solar plex and knocked all of the wind completely out of me. Mm. I was unable to pull oxygen into my body, and that scared me. First time it ever happened. You know, I'm only 11 years old. I'm still a kid. First time it ever happened. So when... My brother seen this, you know, he began crying. He gets on the bike. He goes back home. He comes back with my father's weapon. My father had a weapon in the closet. So my brother comes back with the weapon. And when he comes back, he aims the weapon at the guy, but he's still crying. He's, you know, he's scared. He's shaking. Oh, wow. You know, so you're, I, you're almost close enough that the, and the guy's still there? The or? guy never left. Oh, wow. Okay. The whole time there, he's sitting there talking tough mess to me. You know, he's calling wow. me names, talking about, yeah, tell your cousin I'm going to do this and that, because it's all directed at my cousin. It's not right, really right. me. This was misdirected anger. I yeah. realized that. So your brother ran to get the only My brother ran to get the gun because he seen somebody hurt his brother, and we yeah. was taught from a child. You don't never, my mother used to have a saying, you know, if somebody ever touches a brother or sister of yours, you stomp them in a grease spot. That was her saying. So we, we, was, we, we grew up in a family to where if you pick on one of us, all of us are going to fight you. Because if we don't, we come back in, we got to fight mom or dad. And we didn't wow. want that fight. So we're going to fight you. And that's just how we were raised. So this mind state is in all of us. And my brother, seeing that I was hurt by this individual, wanted to help me. But the extreme that he went to want to go grab a gun, that's something that none of us have ever done. We've seen guns, but that's something none of us have ever done. Picked up a gun. I mean, me, even at 11, I've never picked up a gun. I've seen a thousand guns at 11, but I've never picked up one. Mm. So when he comes back and, you know, I grabbed a gun from him 
I grabbed a gun from him and said, 38, you know, and you don't have to do too much to a 38, but pull the trigger, pull the hammer back and pull the trigger. And that's what I did. I just began shooting at him and I shot multiple shots at him. But my intention was, my intention was to remove the threat. Were you aiming? Not really. Just, you know, I was more trying to throw bullets at him because yeah. I'm swinging like this. I don't really know what I'm doing with him. Yeah. I'm 11 years old. Yeah. But I'm trying to eliminate this threat. This yeah. threat is still here. It's in my presence, and I still feel threatened. Mm. So I'm trying to eliminate the threat. I mean, at least in my mind, I'm. this person is a threat to me. Because you hit me, you hurt me, you attack me, and and you're still here. Yeah. And now you're verbally assaulting me, and I'm scared. Yeah. So I'm trying to eliminate this threat. I'm trying to remove this threat from my presence. Chase it off, run it off, make it go away. And it was foolish of me to pull that gun and began shooting. One, I don't know how to shoot a gun. So I could have hit somebody in a nearby residence just sitting in their living room it was on so many different levels it was it was not okay for me to do what I did but at the time being threatened being physically wounded I felt that I needed to eliminate that threat what happened next I never expected and that is when I seen this individual laying on the ground, he's quivering, he's scared. He's feeling what I was feeling 10 minutes ago and I can see it in his face. Probably like he's seen the fear in my face when I was on the ground gasping for air, but I see it in his face and it made me feel good. It made me feel good. It made my whole body illuminate, just radiate with joy and pleasure. I mean, a gratification even that, yes, I have control now. I have power. And that became my expression to life whenever I found myself faced with circumstances or a situation that was bigger than me or pushed me up against a wall. You know, when adversity got too much for me, that was my expression to respond in that way. And it became that expression that allowed my, my life to spiral out of control mm. in the way that it did. Because it was one decision after one after another. What I did not recognize then, Craig, was I was being detached from human, mm, yeah. from humanity. I was being detached every time I acted out that way. I was saying that no other life, no other choice, no other right matters but mine. And I am entitled to do and express myself this way and only this way. Wow. Mm. <coughs> that expression that expression took more from me than I, I cared to lose 
but it gave me more than I could ever comprehend. And it took me, it took me a lifetime. I'm still learning from it. Mm. It took me a lifetime since, since I, I shot that individual so many years ago, cause it's been decades. I have come encounter to him. I've seen him. So he lived. He lived. And did you get uh, arrested or anything no. like that, or just? Well, when I was growing up, they had a, they had a, a policy, a, a rule, or a regulation that you don't talk to the police, even if you're the victim. You do not talk to the police. So I was forbid to talk to the police and he was forbid to talk to the police. Mm. And even though he was shot and the ambulance came and got him and took him to the hospital, he, he didn't see say anything. Yeah. So it was me, him and my brothers that knew what happened or whoever else he told. Mm. <clears throat> but since that time where that shooting happened, I seen him and when I seen him, I hesitated because I didn't know how he was going to respond. And this was still back then? No, this was recently. Wow. This was recently. And when I seen this individual, as I said, I hesitated. And when he seen me, the first thing came out of his mouth was, I seen the video scars you made. And then he opened his arms and hugged me. Wow. And when he did that, you know, I felt for the first time, I felt an emotional connection to him because mm. I had never felt that before. I, he was a familiar face in the neighborhood. And then that incident happened. And to me, in my mind, he's a victim. And if I see him again, I'm going to do it again. Because wow. in my mind, he's a victim now. But this was the first time that I've ever had a human connection with him. I felt like, oh, this is a brother of mine. Wow. And I really cared for him in that, in that embrace. Yeah. But it was just powerful for him to see whatever, whatever difficult path life took him down and he learned from it. When he seen the video that I did of scars and he seen me standing in his presence, he felt a strong connection to me. Because when I seen him, I did not first feel that. Mm. Yeah. What context did you see him in? Was he? No, I yeah. went to um, a nephew of mine was killed about a year after I was released from prison. And I went to I went to the wake. And while I was at the wake, some gang members walked into the park or the area. So I walked over to my nephew's mother. I gave her a hug and I told her I need to go. And then she was like, why baby, you just got here. And I pointed to the group of individuals and I said, I don't want to be around that. He was in that crowd, mm. but I didn't know until I was leaving, exiting, and I had to walk past them that all of them see me and all of them knew me, but I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be in the presence of those people. And I mean, they understand now, they didn't understand then but all of these guys from the old neighborhood I used to hang, they all understand, you know, I'm a different person. I think different. I act different. I speak different. I am a completely different person. Mm. And they, they see it and understand it now. But at first they didn't. Yeah. It, it, was, it was open for judgment. 
Wow. A lot of judgment. So what happened in the neighborhood after you shot that kid with the elders? Did they, like, did they bring you up for something like that and pat it, you on the it, back? It did. did. They say, hey, that was dumb. It was in a public place. It or? did. It, it did bring me up, but it didn't bring me up with the elders. It brought me up with other youth that was my age or a little older than me. Mm. They were the ones that recognized me. They were the ones that uplifted me. They lifted me to an idol status. The elders, all the elders who I've seen do all this wrong and incorporated these ways from, every last one of them scorned me. What was you thinking? What was you doing? Why did you do that? It wasn't that they was defending him. They was like, why did you put yourself in that situation? Now I can replay back the words that they're saying and I can understand why they did it. But of course, me being young, I listened to the praise of the youngsters because the praise of the youngster was like, yeah, you did that. And I felt good when I did it. Mm. So what they're saying makes sense. That's right. That's the right way to feel. What these older guys are talking about, that's not the right way to feel. Mm. And the older guys was trying to warn me that you're going to walk down a path you don't want to walk down making them type of choices. Mm. They're like, we're doing this over here, but we ain't really hurting nobody, or so they thought. Wow, yeah. But what you're doing, yeah, you're going to destroy your life. And they were trying to warn me. Mm. And I wasn't, I, I wasn't receptive to that. I was receptive to what the younger generation was saying because the younger generation said something that resonated with me. They heard what you wanted to hear. Exactly. Wow. I heard exactly what I wanted to hear. And yeah. it, became, it became, like I said, it became my life expression. Mm. And did you begin carrying a gun after that? Absolutely. I be, had a gun fetish. Mm. I would, you know, I've had uh, uh, my oldest daughter, mother, she told me when my daughters was kids, she said, you used to have guns in every room in the house. And I'd never seen it that way. I was like, I just have a gun in the house to protect us. But it was, it was not just one, it was abundance. It was far more than what you needed mm. for the reason you say you need them for. Yeah, so it was, that you was say your, you need them for protection, but you got them like, this is the okay corral. You don't need that many weapons, but I, I had a fetish for them. Oh, wow. So I, had, I had a real bad fetish for them. What were the next few years like for you? <clears throat> the next few years for me was two things. It was trying to make my mark. I was trying to make my mark on my community and the opposing communities. Because mm. there you was get a, into a gang. I got like into a gang. Point. I got into a gang. I got into selling drugs. I got into stealing cars. You name it, I was doing it. Mm. And I was all doing it because one, I wanted recognition. Two, I needed a family. I knew. I, I know I have a family at home. But there was so much dysfunction in my family. I didn't feel love. I didn't feel, I didn't feel a part of that family. And I wanted a family. So I turned to the streets and I felt these guys who I spun a lot of time with, these females who knew a lot about me, they became my family. Now, of course, my family family knows more about me than anybody out here in the streets. 
But to me, in my head, the child of 11, 12 year old, these are my people. They understand me more than anybody. Yeah, and they looked up to you. You were the leader, I'm sure, at that point still. No, I, you were... I, I became the leader. Yeah, wow. I became the leader because I, the street that we grew up on, that became the gang that I started. Oh, you started your own gang? I started my own gang. Oh, wow. And was there a focus of the gang? Was it protection? Was it stealing the cars or running the drugs? <clears throat> the, initial, the initial focus of the gang was to be a vanguard. It was to be a frontline protection for this neighborhood and the residents in here. Mm. How old were you at that point? I was 12. I was 12 when we started this. Wow. But again, you have to look at my influences. I grew yeah. up around people who were political. I grew up around people who were militant. I really mean militant. They were strict disciplinarians. They were uh, uh, everything that they did was far mature than the local gang life. It was far more mature. I grew up around organization, structure, uh, uh, politics, and policies, and they were enforced by the strictest of laws. I mean, to even use terminologies like vanguard back then, people look at you and say, we, we, who you been hanging around? You been on, on the East Coast somewhere? Yes, I have. And yes, I have been hanging around some of those people. And it's just, um, I incorporated what I learned from them. I definitely incorporated that mm. in what I was trying to do. But by us being young juveniles, we did young juvenile delinquent stuff. Gotcha. So we really didn't stand by the laws and the principles we said that this was going to be about. Oh, gotcha. So you, you had a outward facing the EU, the defenders we and, went and so out for far, justice, but then you'd go steal something from a we store. We went so or... far as to take a scene from the Godfather and prick our fingers and drop bloods, drop droplets of bloods in a bowl. We, we went so far to even do that, you know, because we really wanted this to be a blood in, blood out coded life mm -hmm. and we was willing to spill bloodshed or we was willing to have our blood spilled. Mm. Was there an initiation to Absolutely. get in once you once you had Absolutely. it started? Well not for everybody when we first started then it was the, just the, the immediate people. individuals in our circle yes it was initiation because I know you but I don't think you're really ready for what we're about to do. Uh, so what was the initiation was it? The initiations were different for every individual you know it might be you go steal this car and, and run it through that pizza hut. It, drive a car through the pizza through hut? Drive a car through the pizza you hut. You actually had so someone do that? Yeah. Wow. You know, and it could be just because the, the, the owner pissed us off. Wow. You know, told us to get out. You know what I'm saying? We're playing video games, eating pizza. Told us to get out. We're making too much noise. Okay, I don't like him anymore. So you steal that car and drive it through the pizza hut and you in. And sometimes it was more violent than that. It was take this baseball bat and go bust her head. It was far wow. more violent than that. It just depended on the individual. But like I said, it was the, the, the first wave, I would say the first wave of the individuals we were hanging around. We tested each other like that mm. to demonstrate loyalty. Mm. So were you stealing cars before you had a driver's license? And yes, <laughs> absolutely. Wow. I, was, I, I had my first car at 12. I had my first car at 12. 
And it was a stolen Caprice classic. Oh, and you kept it for yourself to drive I, around. It was my car. I oh, wow, because you knew no one car. was going to come after you. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It was my car. Well, I stole the car from the other side of town, so oh. I knew they weren't going to be looking over here for the car. So, But uh, the car had a big old, big old hole in the ignition. I used to start it with a screwdriver, and I used to park it right up the street from my house every day for like four or five months. That was my car. You, you still live with your folks then? I was still living with my mother and father. Oh, wow. And you just taught yourself how to drive? or? Yeah, I wow. taught myself how to drive, but then I had some uncles and some okay. older friends from the neighborhood who also... And they didn't care that you were 12, it was just the way it is? Uh, I like, mean, it was the way of life, you know what I'm saying? Wow. They, they're, they're trying to teach you, in their mind, they're trying to teach you how to be an adult. Okay, so anything that gets you on that path to... If you say you want to smoke marijuana, they're going to teach you how to smoke it. Mm. They're going to teach you how to get a good hit, how to blow it out. You say you want to smoke cigarettes, they're going to teach you how to do that. So did someone teach you how to steal the cars, too, with taking the ignition yeah, out? Yeah, somebody, somebody taught me. I didn't know how to do that. Uh, somebody okay. taught me how to do that. What was it uh, uh, like when you stole the first one? Was that Were you like an apprentice? Did you go with no, the guy? No, the, the, the yeah. first time I stole the first one, you know what I'm saying, I messed everything up. As a, as a matter of fact, the first few that I stole, I messed everything up, and I had to have somebody else come back and... I spent too much time. I damaged too much stuff. Oh, wow. You know what I'm saying? Is there any worry that the cops are going to pull up or the cops just left that neighborhood alone? I would say back then when we were coming up, if there was not a police that was in, in, in route, if, he's, if this is his route, this area, this region, if this is his route and he is in route while the crime is going on, you might get a response. Outside of that, you can be laying dead in the, in the streets and the police would take two, three hours to get there. Wow. I mean, it was really bad. The response time was really bad, but they didn't. It was how people see and perceive certain communities and the residents of those certain communities. If you don't value that community, you're not going to respond. Mm. If somebody looks and says there was two houses breaking in in Malibu, the police may respond faster if you say they was broken in in Compton. Mm. And it's just a mind state, you yeah. know. It, it's just a mind state, you know, and it's bad on both ends because on one side you have the law who are supposed to uphold, on the other side you have the resident who needs, who yeah. needs this service. So, you know, and again, it was something that was normal. Yeah. Did you Growing guess? up, we can be sitting down watching TV and you hear gunshots and you don't even flinch. Wow. It became normal. It became normal to hear a, 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 a siren of a ammy lamb screeching down uh, the street going to somebody who's been shot or stabbed and it sounded like it's right in your living room. It became normal. Wow. You just, hey, turn the TV, turn the volume up. Wow. It became normal. Was there times when you lost people you cared about? Absolutely. You, all the time. Mm. All the time. I had a, um, a friend, I believe, I believe Elijah was eight. He was eight, maybe nine. He was run over by a car, you know, on, on our main, on the main road back then, they didn't have um, traffic stops. And the traffic would just, they would just 70, 80 miles an hour. They'd fly up and down that street. And um, 
all the little kids was trying to get to the, the convenience store across the street because they sold all their sweet treats and all that. And they had video games in there. So all the kids would just be trying to get to the across the street. And one day he was going across the street and got he got hit and drug a long way and died instantly, you know, by a car because of that crosswalk. Oh, man. They ended up, because of his death, ended up putting a, uh, a stoplight there, you know, a mm. four-way stoplight there. But it took that to happen that, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, that wasn't the first death I seen, but he was the he was definitely the youngest out of all my friends. Wow. He was definitely the youngest. But it what even though he was the youngest, for me it wasn't the most traumatic. Because he died, I knew him, I understood that we live, we die. I understood that uh, it was not his fault. Yeah. But it was it was by far the most traumatic. The most traumatic was when I was 15. I was 15 years old, and me and my best friend, we're both gangbanging. He's, he's younger than me. And we're both gang members, and some rival gang members come through, and they began shooting, just began shooting. You guys were hanging out at... Uh, we were hanging out in a gang neighborhood at, at a gang location. Just like in a park or something like that? No, or? in front of some apartment complex. Oh, okay. And they just came by and they began shooting. And as they were shooting, I responded shooting and, and my friend responded shooting. So I felt, I felt a sense of control, like we're getting control of this situation. Somebody's trying to harm us, we're defending ourselves. So, you know, we okay. What I didn't know that is one of the bullets, one of the straight bullets hit him and he was on the ground. The whole time I'm thinking he's shooting. I knew I was shooting, but I'm thinking he was shooting and he's on the ground. When I finally looked to my side and noticed, I stopped everything that I was doing, dropped a gun and attended to him. And he started gasping for air and I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he can't talk. And I said, man, get up right now. You know, I, I got mad. You know, I was full of adrenaline and I grabbed him real time and I said, get up right now. Get up. And he jumped up and he began running up the apartment stairs. He was running up the stairs. And as he was running up the stairs so fast, I guess he got dizzy and he missed a step. And there are concrete slate steps. So when he missed a step, he went head first. Boom. You can hear it go boom. Ooh. It echoed. I mean, even to this day, the sound of that stair, when it echoed, it just hums. It just mm. And he's coming down the steps like this. And I grabbed him and I pulled him over and his whole face is bloody. And I'm trying to talk to him. I see he's hurt, but I'm trying to connect with him. I'm trying to talk to him and he's, and I'm like, Carlton, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he said, take care of her, take care of her. Take care of who, what are you talking about? What, what are you talking about? And he took his last breath. Oh man. That, that I took personal on so many levels. I felt like he died because of me. I felt like I was the reason why he was dead. Then I began to feel like I didn't do anything to try to save him. I mean, I beat myself up so many times and it just made me take that whole situation worse and worse and worse. And 
I began drinking alcohol real heavy and I really began to act out extremely violent. I mean, I was violent before, but I really got violent. I mean, I got violent. I even, me and my mother fought. I got really violent. Mm. And it was okay for anybody that got in the way, it was okay for you to get hurt. Is that the type of thing where you go retaliate? In those, in, yeah, of course, in those type of, of course, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's part of the lifestyle that you have to retaliate. But I went beyond that. Mm. I went beyond that because I began, I began to be poisoned. I hurt people who were close to me. I didn't just, I didn't hurt those who hurt us. I hurt people that was close to me because I was so hurt. Mm. I'm battling inside my mind as to whether or not I want to live and die every day. Wow. I'm battling in my mind. I'm contemplating it. I'm like, put the gun to your head, kill yourself. Oh man, so much guilt. It's so much going because what I experienced with him, it amplified everything that I had experienced and went through up until that point. So it became validation. It's like, look, your life don't matter. Remember what happened there? Look, your life don't matter. Your dad kicked you out. Look, your life don't matter. So it kept validating that negative voice that kept running itself in my head over and over. And I was letting it win. I was not trying to fight it. And I had nobody to teach me coping skills. I had nobody to, to counsel me. Nobody in my immediate presence. And even those who were in my immediate presence, I became so isolated and cut off that they already knew. Don't ask him no questions. Don't talk to him. Mm. He's sitting in a room by himself. He don't want to be bothered. They knew because they have been that way. So they were familiar. They don't bother him right now. Because I had to, by this time, I had to leave home. I I couldn't be home no more. I'm imploding from the inside. I'm, mm. Man, it's, it's, it's dangerous on the inside. And family, they want to smother you. They want to show you affection. They want to love you. And I didn't want that right then. I wanted it, but I didn't want it from them right then. Mm. I was like, I don't want you to hug me right now because I feel like you caused some of this pain. Wow. So I'm pointing fingers at they're giving me everything that oh, I man. want. Yeah. Everything that I'm craving from a mother, from a father, from a family, they're giving me. But I'm pushing it away because in my head, you're guilty of some of this pain. Mm. And that was because I don't I don't have the skills to make sense of this, to sort this out. It makes sense to me. And when you get around others who. Who mimic. Everything that you're doing, everything that you think when they are mimicking that in their own homes, that gives you that gives you a definition for what you have or what you're doing. It allows you to sit up here and say, this is what it is, is principle. And it's this for this reason. But again, they have no solution. They can't begin to tell you the first thing about why you feel the way you feel, why you're experiencing the things you're experiencing. And it became, like I said, it became that expression, that violent expression coupled with this 
confusion of wanting to live and die. It just, every choice that I made, mm. it was reckless, it was dangerous, and it was destructive. And I didn't care. I was disconnected. Wow. So you moved out on your own at that point? I moved out on my own when I was 13. Wow. Were you already uh, moving drugs at that point I for money? Moving, Is that I, where the money was from? That was one of the reasons why the conflict began to happen in the house. They found out shortly after I was 12 years old that I was selling drugs. Mm. Did it start with weed or? Is yeah, it started okay. with weed, you yeah. know, but my, def, my, my position was, not definition, my position was I'm getting it from the house. I'm not, I don't have to go outside the house to get exposed to any of this. Oh, because your parents were right smoking here. or? No, only one of my parents. My, my, okay. I had one functioning adult in the house and I had another one that wasn't, mm. you know, and uh, it, was, it was difficult for me to hear what they were saying when I found flaw with what they were saying. You know, like, for example, my mother told me when she first found out I was driving, she told me, you don't have a license. You can't drive a car. In my mind, the way I registered that information is you don't have a license and you drive a car. She hit me. Oh, wow. So the, the insult, I mean, the, 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 the infliction of the infliction of pain on top of the insult of me being right was validation to sit up here and say, I don't need to be here. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm. You're going to hit me because I told you the truth. You don't have a license. You're a grown woman. You don't have a license. But you're telling me I can't drive a car because I don't have a license, even though I drive as good as you. There had come a time where I felt it was, it was time for me to leave the house. It was, I felt I was mature enough. And I was responsible enough to take care of myself outside of the zone or comfort of my mother and father. My mother and father, I believed that a mother and father is there to offer a children uh, nursing up into a certain level of maturity. I felt I had reached that level of maturity and I no longer needed your nursing. I no longer needed your rearing or your guidance. I felt that way. They didn't feel that way. <laughs> they, of course, my mother, yeah. my mother, of course. I thought really, you needed more than ever. And maybe, maybe you did in retrospect. My mother but. went so far as to it. When I moved out, she went so far as to enforce it. She used to have my older sister drive her through the neighborhood and was like, where he at? Jump out the car and I would run from her. Because I knew if I didn't run from her, we were going to fight. My mama was not a pushover. She wow. was a feisty woman. Wow. And I knew we were going to fight with fists. I'm not talking about argue. I knew we were going to fight with fists. So I would try to avoid the conflict. So when my mother would come, I would run. And all my friends would tease me. They were like, you running from your mama. And I said, man, y'all know how she is. <laughs> if I stay there, y'all know what's going to happen, <laughs> man. I was like, and I'm not going to let my mama beat me up out here and embarrass me. I was like... Y'all know how my mommy is. I was like, so it's the best thing to do is to run. So you can make laugh all you want, but I'm running because I don't want to. I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen. But it it eventually did because it got to a place to where I didn't even care no more. It got to a place. It got so dark inside me 
and I didn't even care no more. I didn't mm. even really see her as this loving, nurturing woman anymore because I became so disconnected from my humanity. I became that way. The life expression It put a hole in me. The life expression that I took on at an early age, it put a hole inside me. And because I didn't know what to fill the hole with, I just tried to keep making it deeper mm. because I felt like maybe there's something on the other side of this. Maybe, I don't, mm. I don't know. I just kept making it deeper. Oh, wow. And it got to a point where it was so deep, I couldn't recognize it. I could look at myself in a mirror and I couldn't recognize it. And it was people, it was people outside of myself that they were coming to me and they were looking at me and they saying, hey, you know I know you. And this is what I'm seeing in you. This is what I'm seeing. And I'm talking about this is literally Everybody I know is coming to me doing this, but they're, I know they're telling me from a place of concern, like, hey, we got concern for you. Last night you was smoking on some PCP and you was trying to lift a car. Mm. And I don't remember any of that. Mm. So in my mind, it's like, man, go on, you, you're embellishing. That's not true. They were like, you were, would I got to put you on video to show you? This is what you were doing. You're out of control. Mm. And many people, many people in my life, and they're coming and they're telling me in different areas, they're telling me and it was like, you're being reckless, you're being careless. And it made me, it made me say to myself, maybe I need help. So we went out and, and we committed the crime and we got into a high speed chase with the police. And I remember when we were running, I remember saying to myself, I need to go to jail. I said it to myself, I need to go to jail. I don't know anybody out here in society can help me. I need to go to jail. I need to. And when I went to jail, what I didn't know is I, I was on bail from one case and I absconded because I didn't go to court. So I got a warrant out for my arrest on that case. And then I got a warrant out for my arrest on another case. Mm. So when I got caught on this case, this is three cases. On the high speed chase. On the high speed chase, this is three cases. And you didn't realize that, but you let, you, I, did you let them catch you? Or yeah, I let them catch me. Wow. I gave up. Okay. Because I ran, I got away from them. Everybody else got caught, I got away. Wow. I got away. I and then you go away. turn yourself in, or how did you, no, like, or just, you just, I just, in? I was, I, I, okay, let's say we're in a residential neighborhood. And the house we were at was on X Street. I ran all the way to T Street. I was a long distance away from where the scene of the crime was. But the police were still in patrol in the neighborhood. And I'm telling myself in my mind, you need to go to jail. You need to go to jail. Wow. I'm up under a car. It was a um, it was an old truck, like a Ford 150 truck, but it was sitting up high. It had big, real big wheels on it. And I was under the truck with my hands wrapped around the muffler and my legs wrapped around the axle pipe. And I pulled myself up because I've seen the police. They're looking down. They're looking under cars. They're in the bushes. They're knocking on people's doors. And the whole time, and they passed by the house that I'm at two or three times. I'm there up under the car. 
I'm like, all I got to do is wait them out and I'm, I'm going home. But the voice in my head was, you need to go to jail. So I said, you're tired. The voice still playing, you're tired. You need to let go. So I did, I let go. I slide up from under the car and I began walking down the street and the police said, there he is. They're way down there. And I, I came out, hey, and they took me to jail. Wow. I got away, but I gave myself up and I knew I needed to give myself up because I knew I was drowning. How old just, were you then? I was about 21, 22. Okay. But I was, <clears throat> with all the crimes that I had committed, I didn't even realize. I was like, when, when the judge was reading off some of these crimes, I'm like, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And I'm li- reading the police reports. I didn't do this, but I did it. Couldn't even remember. It was just all, all a blur. Some of it I couldn't remember, and some of it I didn't even want to remember. Oh. It's like when you tell yourself a lie enough, you, you believe the lie. Mm. You enforce the lie. And it was the same thing with this. You know, I, be- I believe that I wasn't this person people were saying I was. And I believed it enough to where I was convinced that I didn't do that. Mm. Had but, you been in jail at all before that for like like absolutely. single nights? I've been in and out of jail since I was 12, no, yeah, 13 years old. I've been in and out of jail. But this was the time when they gave you a long sentence? This was the first time they gave me a long first sentence. First time. Because I have been out of, in and out of jail since I was 13, and the longest I've ever stayed in society from that age was about eight months. And, wow. Eight what, months on the streets. So it was okay. like every eight months on the streets, I'm back in jail. But as I got older, that time began, that window of time began to shorten. Oh, wow. Dramatically, it would be like, you're only on the streets for two months. You're only on the streets for 30 days. You're only on the streets for a week. And then you're back in jail for and a few days? Or is it- no, you, I, I wasn't doing a few days. You're doing a few months? A few years. I, every time I went to my, my first time. Wait, be, before, the, before this high-speed chase, you'd been in... For before years, I so had, I just, before the, the high-speed chase, I went to jail for two grand theft autos. As a juvenile, you basically get what they call it the turnaround. They basically call your parents, tell your parents, hey, this guy, I mean, your, your son is here in juvenile hall. This is what he did. So then your parent comes pick you up. They let you, you don't have to see a judge or anything. They let you take the kid home. Now, when you start showing repetition of breaking the law, they say, hey, we're going to keep him here for a couple days. Let him see the judge. Let the judge determine what to do with him. Mm. Because now you're becoming a juvenile delinquent. Gotcha. But the first time or the second time, they'll call your parents and tell your parents, come get him. So then when you were 21, this is the first time that you got a sentence that was multiple years? When I got, when I turned 21, it was the first time that I got a sentence for uh, multiple years. It was actually 10 years. The judge said 10 years with halftime. What does that because mean? Because it means that on the principal term of time that you're sentenced to, you're entitled to half of, to only serve half of the time because of the laws. So you'd be able to get out in five if <laughs> you were? You'd be able to get out five versus 10. Okay. But if you cannot stay disciplinary free and you keep getting in trouble while you're in there, then they can hold you for the whole 10. Oh, wow. That's what the law says. But if you want good behavior, you can go home in five. Of course, I wasn't on good behavior and I did not go home in five. I went home in seven. 
What did it feel like when you got that sentence? Was it, in a way, a relief to be off the streets? Because you said that you knew somewhere inside that you needed to get off of the streets, or was it, it still it devastating? Was, it was. It, uh, of course, I wanted freedom. Yeah. I wanted to be free, of course. Yeah. But the reality is I'm not free, so I don't care. That is the mind. You cannot care. You cannot attach yourself to emotions when you live in that lifestyle. You can't because you become weak. You mm. become vulnerable because mm. it's dog to eat dog world out there. Yeah. So when you when you program these feelings, these thoughts into your mind, they go deep. That hole gets deep. It gets really deep. And like I said, I couldn't even recognize myself. My hole was that deep. I could not recognize who I was because instead of filling the hole up with something meaningful, I didn't have anything meaningful. I didn't have a meaningful book in my hand. I didn't have a meaningful mentor, but I had him and he'll give me a gun and he'll take me over here and rob this store with me. So let me just dig this hole deeper. And that's what I did. Mm. I dug it until it was unidentifiable. And now that it's unidentifiable and I find myself in prison on my first term facing a long time, I don't care. What do we have to do? The judge told me, he just says, man, you're smart. Do this time and come home and look me up. And I went, <laughs> yeah, in your dreams. He was basically telling me, I see something in you, wow. look me up. And he would I, I didn't you. take him serious at wow. all. And he's not the first judge that told me that. Mm. I deliberately chose to go back to the poison, even though inside me, I complained about it. I was like, man, why did he do that? Why did, because I mean, you know, go out and wreak havoc on the world but don't rape no women. Go out and kill all your enemies. Don't shoot no babies. You. This is like, where do you draw the line? Where yeah. do you draw the line? And everybody is different. When you're coming from that lifestyle, everybody is different. They're not the same. Yeah, Some definitely. people be like, kill the kids. Yeah. Some people don't, they don't have mm. that line. Yeah. And I had those lines. And you probably, it sounds like you felt your line moving. From I've been feeling my line moving, but I would never listen to my, I would, when I heard the voice, when I felt the feeling, I wouldn't listen to it. I would just remove myself from it so I don't have to make the choice. Mm. And I felt in that I was right. If I seen a man fighting with a woman and he is physically attacking her, beating her up, I can jump in and I can help her. Because I'm against that, don't do that, especially in my presence. But in my mind, I'm gonna leave so I don't gotta see it. Because if I don't have to see it, I don't gotta say nothing, I don't gotta intervene. But in the back of my mind, I know this man had probably put this woman in the hospital and you did nothing. Mm. And the more that I did this, the more I became disconnected with even caring. Mm. And then in your seven years in prison, was there a turning point behind Absolutely those walls? Not. Absolutely not. 
when you are when you are in prison prison from the times of when I first started going beyond the times that I first started going up until the present present I'm going to give a little exception because they do have a little more reform on prison prison was about society removing its problems and putting it in a place a mass place a bowl of crabs and all got problems you can only imagine what chaos was going on up in there mm. so whatever you are with all whatever you do whatever you stand for all i need is something for me to validate having a relationship with you what do we have in common what school did you go to where did you grow up what gang are you a part of what color do you like what are your enemies once i identify one of those things and i say you know what we don't got nothing in common but you don't like those guys over there i don't like them either you my best friend let's go kill them let's stab them let's do whatever that in prison that's what it is Just it's finding finding alliances it's, it's it is an organism looking for another organism to attach itself to so it can grow mm. that's what prison is and cdcr throughout my entire time dealing with cdcr they were not offering any programs that really step in and put hands on to help the problem cuz the problem is not necessarily the individual not on the outside it's the individual on the inside yeah and most individuals on the inside think they think pretty low of themselves they really think they're slime they really think they're just the the, the lowest form on the planet they don't think highly of themselves and when they do think highly of themselves it is a misled delusion cuz you are not the best fighter in the world you are not the best fighter in the world you never fought professional fighters you fought street fighters yeah. you won those fights but you're not a trained and conditioned fighter so what you can fight so what you don't won 90% of the fights in your life for you to tell yourself nobody on the planet can beat you is a misconception that's a falsehood but it's a falsehood and bravado that's designed by this lifestyle you live by yeah. the choices you make yeah and it makes you in that regard destructive because everybody you see you want a challenge to a fight because you think can't nobody beat you mm. was that you that no well i i wasn't a fighter i was okay. a shooter i like to shoot okay I, of what what we call pretty boys. I knew I had a nice looking face and you know I don't want you knocking none of my teeth out and you know and I know us guys out there fight better than me. I wasn't going to take that chance. We not we not even going to do that. You want to hurt me, I'm going to hurt you this way. You want to hurt me that way. Two different things. Mm. You know, knife to a gunfight. <laughs> Two different things. But um for me the 7 years in prison made me worse and mm. what i mean by that is 
it exposed me to a lot of like-minded individuals that I probably would have never met if I not if I hadn't been put in that place. Oh, interesting. And these individuals, I felt I had something in common with. Each individual along my path, I had something in common with. There's guys in prison right now that I used to call my brother, my best friend, my uncle. I felt that close to them. And there wasn't anything that I would do for them. They replaced something that I lost while I was in society. I had a girlfriend while I was in society. I had an auntie while I was in society. I had a mom. I had an uncle. I had a dad while I was in society. They replaced symbolically. They mm. replaced this. For yeah. Me. So you had some elders in prison. You had some yes, people that looked up to you. You had some people who were like equals. doing the destructive stuff that got me in prison. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Mm. You want to smuggle some drugs into prison so we can make $2,000 off of it? Let's do it. I mean, they say you're the average no, of the five people you spend most of your time with, right? So if you right. around those people. And that's what it was. We're yeah. exposed to the same element that got us here. Yeah. And nobody, not, not within CDC. Well, back then it was CDC. Then they put the R on it for rehabilitation. But, you know, I'm only going to give them a little credit. And the only reason why we'll give them a little credit is because the individuals they put in place to apply or enforce the rehabilitation don't do anything. That's interesting. Though. So that's California, uh, this California Department, of, Department Corrections? of Corrections. And then they added the R recently. It used to be CDC, California Department of Corrections. Okay. And now they put the R, so it's CDCR, California okay. Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. So a step in the right direction. It's a step it's in the right direction, but yeah, I mean, you know. it's like a good intentions, you know, and that's just a a, 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 a paved a, a paved road of gold, you know what I'm saying? But it's really no value. Hmm. Your intention is good, but there is no substance there because the teachers and the programs, and I swear that all they do, Craig, is they give you some curriculum. And then send you to your cell telling you to do the curriculum. They don't really teach you anything. You have mm. to teach yourself. Mm. So when you got out, was it right back to the streets then? It was right back to the streets. Mm. It was immediately. It was right back to the streets with the mindset. I, walked, I got back to the streets. I walked through my neighborhood. And I'm looking for somebody to front me some drugs, give me a gun, anything. And wow. when I did that, a lot of... A lot of friends that I had left when I, you know, that I was socializing with in society when I left, they looked at me and they said, don't give them a gun. They start calling around, calling other people, don't give that boy no gun. They didn't want no, you to go back to the they same. They knew what I was going to do. They yeah. knew as soon as you give me a gun, they know what I'm going to do. I'm going to rob you when I'm going to shoot you. They know if you, I'm asking for a gun. I'm not asking you for drugs. I'm not asking you for money. I'm asking you for a gun. They know what I'm finna go do. Mm. And they're calling other people and they say, don't get that boy no gun. That boy at home and he looking for a gun. Don't get that boy no gun. Mm. These are signs that I was not paying attention to. These were signs telling me that my thinking, my behavior, I'm out of control. Why would I get my freedom back? I'm in society. I don't go run to see my kids. 
Oh, you had kids at this point? Yes. Oh, man. I don't go home to see my kids. I don't go home to hug my woman. I go right back to the streets looking for some mischief to get into. Did you find a gun? Hell yeah, I found a gun. But I was appeased. What does that mean? Appeased, meaning someone gave me some money and some drugs. Okay. So now I feel comfortable. I went to the store. I bought me my alcohol of choice. I went and bought me a bag of marijuana. Then I went and seen my woman and my kids. Because now I feel like I'm home. I'm, I'm relaxed now. You got the things that but, can numb you out to the feelings. look at the things that I needed. Yeah. To make me feel home, accepted. Yeah, it wasn't the kids and the It wasn't the, the woman. kids. It, was it wasn't the, my woman. It, it's things that take you further things. away. Yeah. And I didn't see it. I cannot see that. I'm so deep inside this hole that I cannot clearly see that. Mm. And there was no program in CDC at the time that was saying, hey, look, you don't see this? Look at this. Wow. So how, how does this make sense to you? How do you escape from something like that? Help. You, 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 have, to go out, you have to go outside of yourself. And this is as interesting as it is. In order to find help, you have to go outside of your help. I mean, outside of yourself. But in order to help yourself, you have to go inside yourself. <laughs> it's really, yeah. it's really interesting. But I didn't know it. So did you have another voice, like the voice that said, "Hey, you need to go to jail"? Did you have another voice pop up had, at we, some we point that said, have, "You need to find some some real I help"? I believe, I believe every human being was wired with all the content in their life to help them through their journey. But most of that content sits dormant inside of us because we feed to the exteriors of life. We not really catering our time and our attention to the interior man and woman. Yeah. And I know that I wasn't doing this. We bury it. We bury those emotions. We bury that We bury everything. And then we find ourselves and every human being on the planet that I've ever come across, they all say the same thing. And that is that you come across someone else who shares a moment, who shares a lesson. You read a book, you watch a movie, and you have what we call epiphanies. It's not really an epiphany. It's always been there. It's always been there. Something just triggered what was already there. What did I need to trigger what's already there for me? I didn't have that answer, but I knew I wanted to find. I wanted to find an answer, and that, I believe, is what, because it wasn't really CDCR. It, CDCR had nothing to do with it. They could never take credit for it. It was me wanting to discover how can I be better? Who am I to be better? What can I be better to? I need to answer these questions for me. Do I even love myself? And if I, if I love myself, meaningful enough can I love another human being? Mm. If I can love myself in such a meaningful way, can I then look at another love, a human being and love them? So one day you had that realization or was it a book or, or a teacher? I, well, that's what it began. I began searching books. I began searching, mimicking my mother, searching spiritual 
texts. Mm -hmm. And I, you're searching, you're come home from the gangbanging and then you look through the spiritual texts. Is this, or had you pulled you know, yourself out of the just, neighborhood you know, at this point? Not really. I was, I was still in the neighborhood, but I've always been, I've always been a person about seclusion. I mean, even when I was young, I used to have go, your own time. I used to go to the Sacramento River. I would get up two, three in the morning and I would go in the backyard, unchain the dog and we walk up to the Sacramento River and I would sit there and throw rocks or make a fire bonfire or catch fish with the dog until the sun comes up and it's time to go to school. I've always been about seclusion. I've because I've always needed I needed a time to clear my head. Because even as a kid, it was so much rambling going on in my head. It was just confusing me. And I always needed time to clear my head. So when, when I was in prison and when I was back in, the, in society, I always found a place to do that. Sometimes it would be going out to a restaurant at four in the morning where I know nobody is there. And I would go find a booth way in the back in the corner somewhere. And I would just sit there. I would pull my hoodie over my head, slump down in a chair, and just have my moment. Sometimes I would go rent a hotel room. I got keys to my own house. I would go rent a motel room and just lay there. Mm. Because I needed a moment of clarity to where I didn't want to think about anything. And so it was in those moments you realized that you weren't loving yourself? No. In those moments, I kept hearing the questions. And the questions, the louder the questions they got, the 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 more the, the more the questions reoccurred for me, you know, what is life about? What, what is your purpose about? Do you have a purpose? When these questions keep coming up year after year, they keep coming up. I said, I need an answer. I need an answer. And that kept me hungry searching. And I would, like I said, I would search text. I would search spiritual doctrine. I would search song. I mean, you know, still to this day, I can watch movies and, you know, and I can find it's a script, but the script and words in the script are coming from somewhere. And they are meant to touch or unlock something. And I can be watching that and something is said, and I'm like, wow, that is wow. Did you hear what that person said right there? Do you understand what that means? Because now I can connect because something inside me was unlocked, but that something inside me was always there. I was just curious to find out what it was because I didn't know. That was for many years, decades, that I didn't know who I was or what I was. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to get to that discovery. And when I got to that discovery, it brought tears to my it brought tears to my eyes to discover who I was and what I was. Mm. Because once I did that, I can look at you, I can look at every human being that I ever come across in my life and sit up here and say the same is true for them. Whether they realize it, the same is true for them. And what I've learned about people and myself is that when we're looking for acceptance, that is the distraction. That is the, that is the exterior distraction from the eternal, from the inward internal attention that we need to give to ourselves throughout our life. 
Mm. Because in order for our life to have any true meaning, in order for us to reach our highest self, we have to know our highest self. And some people say, how can you know a self that hasn't existed yet? It does exist already. It exists already. You just got to go find it. Got to find it in here. You got to find it. It's there. Yeah. It's it's been there. It's been, you got to go find it. You have to go find it. We are constantly, we are constantly evolving as a species. We are constantly evolving in sciences. We are constantly evolving in spirituality. And yet we cannot, we cannot ever remove the unknown because the unknown has already been marked. It has been marked from the beginning of time to the end of time. The unknown has been marked. The unknown already exists. It already is there. What we need, what we have, what we want is already there. But do we know what we need, what we have, what we want? Do we even know that? Yeah, and so many people get lost in the external. Their external might not be growing up in the type of neighborhood you did. It might be working, you know, 16-hour days and trying to just chase the dollar bill or getting too caught up in social situations. In truth, I have seen it and I have read about the opposite side of that coin. People getting caught up on the internal. Hmm. People are so, you know, these zealots, these, they're just over, they, because they went in there. They dislocate completely. Completely. So it's about the balance. I believe it is about the connection. Mm. I believe for me, when I began to realize who I was, who I was and what I was, I began to realize that everything that flows through me flows through you. Everything that I am composed of, you are composed of. On the outside, we have differences. And because we put definitions on these differences, we throw walls up because of that. Mm. You're black, this is your class. You're white, this is your class. We throw walls up. We as a species do that. We do this internally as well. And we don't even realize you're disconnecting yourself from the thing that is a part of you. Mm. So making self-judgments. You making self-judgments. Mm. But you're doing that condemning yourself. Yeah. Because you don't, when people say look in the mirror, look at the human being across. That is your mirror. Mm. And it's, it, there is a special mirror for everybody. Yeah. For you, it might be your wife. It might be a child. It's a special mirror for everybody. So true. So when you find your perfect mirror and you look in that mirror, you understand what you're looking at. If you cannot understand you looking at, you need to begin that journey to go understand what that means. And it took me a long time to get there, a long time, because as all people do, I questioned everything. 
I'm like, who said it's a God? Who said I need to do it this way? Why do I need to stand up? Why do I need to go over there? Why do I need to pray? Why should I sing? I question everything because I became defiant against any type of authority. Not understanding why authority is. Authority is in, in place for you, for you to accept guidance from another. From you to accept leadership from another. And we don't want to do that because we feel like we got all the answers and all the control and we don't. And I had to get to a place where I'm sitting up here saying, Craig, I don't know where I'm going. Could you please help me, sir? I, I haven't the slightest idea. I haven't the slightest idea what I want to do with my life. But take comfort in that. Take absolutely comfort in that. The greatest thing that any man can do is never accept when he is wrong. Because if you cannot accept a wrong, you do not have the opportunity or the ability to take that information and make the correction. Because that's all it is, is offering you the opportunity and the position to make a correction. I got it wrong. Okay, here's my pivot. Get it right. So if you cannot accept that wrong, there you, you are out of the loop. Yeah. You learn that real fast in a marriage and just how often you're wrong. But I, I, I give, I'm going to say it like this. I give my time. I give my time exclusively to those who charge me and allow me to charge them. There's an exchange. I can come to you, I can get something from you, and I can feed the masses with it, and vice versa. And it can be something as simple as a hug. Because I've got them before. I've gotten the hugs and felt quivers go down my body and was like, but walking around the rest of my day with so much joy. But it's not about expecting what you're getting from the other individual, because I expect nothing. I just want to receive what you give and I am open to give it. So if it's just energy, let it flow. If it's an idea, give it to me. I give my attention to every human being on the face of the planet. The difference in between that dynamic is my attention is given to all people, all classes, all walks of life. But my time is only given to a select of those mm. because the rest have already counted themselves out and me talking till I'm blue in the face, me trying to convince them that, Hey, it's something great about you. I told a woman one time, I said, I see it. I feel it. It's power. She looked at me sincerely tears in her eyes and said, I don't see it. That was sad. I felt like I let her down. Like I failed her. Mm. Because I couldn't get her to see what I see. But she has to do that for herself. Because I can yeah. see it. I can, I can see it clear as day. But that ability was given to me. That doesn't mean she has it. Right. She has to develop it. She has to develop it. Clear the lens so she can see. And I have it. I see it. But she can't see it. And it saddened me. Mm. And I have to ask myself, why am I sad? I was given this ability. Don't be sad because I was given it. Because it didn't come easy to get what I have. 
I had to lose some things. I had to learn some things. I had to hurt with some things in order to get what I have. So it didn't come easy for me. Why am I sad? So I said, you know what, I'm giving my time. I'm, I'm trying to attach myself. I'm trying to attach myself to somebody who's shoulder, who's, who's shoulder blocking me. If you're shoulder blocking me, why do I keep forcing myself upon you? Because that's what it becomes. If you're telling me no and I keep saying yes, I'm forcing myself upon you. And there are people out there that you would try to go out your way to help and they will keep doing that. They will keep doing that with your time, your attention, your efforts. They will keep doing that. And you have to ask yourself, why do I keep going back down this path? Mm. You know, I believe I was telling you about pruning. That's what it became for me. It became pruning. But in, in any individual learning about pruning, it's you understanding what is the concept? What is the basic concept for pruning? I mean, it's just like the basic concept of life. What is it? Before you can find true meaning with it, what is it? So for me, pruning is about understanding why the gardener prunes in the first place. The gardener prunes because the gardener has a fruition. He has a vision. I have a vision. You have a vision. We all have a vision. So if we prune in the instance of the gardener, we prune to our vision. The first instance that a gardener prunes is that the rose bush is going to produce too many blooms. Mm. Our family stock is going to produce too many blooms. It's going to be too many people out there that want, 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 want. Too many. So the gardener says, I have good roses. I have the best roses. I'm going to prune back good roses. We have good relationships. We have good people in our life, but they're not the best. And the best need to be getting all our resources. They need to get all the nutrients because we, the best is going to get us to be the vision of the rose bush. Mm, so that. they're good roses, Yeah. but they're not the best. Yeah. They're not the best. And we have to sit up here and say, I'm trying to get to this vision. Can this good rose get me there or this best? This good relationship with his best. I give mine to the best. So that's why I give my time to those people. Because I know those people will take my time, appreciate it, and give me exactly what I need. I love that. The second reason that a, a, a gardener prunes roses is that some of the roses have got sick. And the gardener has done everything known to science. Everything to garden science. To make these roses better and they're not getting better. We do everything known to our human psyche to make our relationships better and they're not getting better. They just deteriorate over time. The roses are sick. We have to prune them. If we don't prune them, the best roses are being depleted. Yeah. We have to prune them. The third instance that a gardener prunes roses is that some of the roses have got, they got sick and it got worse and they died. The problem with death is death slumps. It blocks the path from the best roses sprouting up. It has to go. You have become a dead thing in my life. Why do I have your number in my phone? Why do I hold on to your email? Mm. Why? You have become a dead thing. Thing 
in my life. You are blocking the path. You, I got your picture on the wall. Why is that there? That has no place there. Every time I look at it, it's a distraction. You're a dead thing in my life. I have to prone it. I want the rose bush to be the vision. I have to prune it. This metaphor doesn't advocate that anybody become a hatchet man. But here is the beautiful thing about being human. This metaphor advocates that you learn to find a new way to prune all those relationships. You don't have to just chop them off and do away with them. Mm, prune each one. Learn how to prune them so that they can be the best roads to get you there. Man, that's powerful. Just learn how to just, uh, uh, just change or alter the way that you've been fixing the relationship. Yeah. I have a nephew. He always asks me for money. So I tell him, I say, well, what is it you want the money for? Oh, I want the money so, you know, me and my girl can keep, keep some money on the phone so I can call and collect. So I tell her, I say, listen, you know what I'm saying? I, this is how I'm going to help you. You call me because I keep money on my phone. You call me and I'll call her and I'll put the phone down. Let y'all talk. Because I'm not going to keep throwing money at the problem because I need to be disciplined in my money because I own my business. Mm -hmm. So you're becoming a sick rose in my life. Mm. Yeah. And I need to prune that. But instead of just cutting you off saying, hey, man, don't call me no more. I fixed the way that I was going to go about fixing the way. <laughs> and that's, and the relationship is better now until I, I have to fix that way. I, I, I want to get, <laughs> as soon as we get done with this interview, I'm going to start pruning, man. I got so many people from the past that I need to prune the relationships with. It's such a great takeaway. No, it is. It, it, you know, I mean, metaphors are leading examples. Yeah. Life. You know, metaphors are definitely leading examples for life. And, you know, I look at the anthill analogy. I, you know, ants, when we're on the outside and we're looking into the ant box, we see ants crawling, bumping heads with each other. They're crawling over each other. They're going left. They're turning around. They're going right. And those outside the box in judgment look and say, that's chaos. But did you know if you was an ant inside the box that everything that you're doing is organized and structured? It makes sense. These two different perspectives need to understand one another before they judge one another. Because I was the ant in the box, and now I'm the one on, side, on the outside of the box. But because I have these two unique different perspectives, I don't make judgment. I don't make judgment. I try to understand. I try to understand that the position you find yourself in, if you find yourself in a high position, look from the outside of the box. If you find yourself in a, in a low position, ask yourself, do you still want to be in the box? Mm. Yeah. You have to ask the question and then the position has to change. It did for me. It's going to have to for anybody else. I love that. Yeah. So talk about the work you're doing now. This is a great segue into it. The work I'm doing now, right now, it, it involves uh, mentorship. There is a lot of mentorship. There is uh, a lot of entrepreneurial, um, I would say, networking and growing, you know, mm -hmm. with, with different businesses from, from different fractions of the labor force. And we're all working together right now because we have different causes, we have different lead ways into the community, and we're trying to help each other and learn from each other 
on how to best solve problems that we find in our communities with our education system. So um, I'm also a part of two other organizations. One is Defy Ventures and another one is Hustle 2.0. I am both graduates of both of these prisons, which they cater to uh, they cater to a crowd of men and women serving time in prison, teaching them how to not only transform their hustle, but transform the way that they see themselves, the way that they speak, the way that they communicate with their family, and overall, the way that they look at their lives from in prison to free men and women in society. Mm. Yeah. They teach these guys, uh, they teach them a lot of amazing skills that I have never seen. And I have over 29 years in incarcerated in the state of California and I have never seen any program that offers what these programs offer. Hustle 2.0 by far is something that I believe should be mandated in all the states of California because of the work they do, because of the volunteers that stand behind the program, and because of individuals like me who, who were in the program, who made the transition, because you gotta make the choice before you make the transition. Yes. I made the choice, I found the program, made the transition, and now I'm here. And I'm CEO of my own company. I mentor, I give back. I go back into the prison, you know, and I help. I help the guys and the girls in there, you know. And and it's that's what it is. You know, it's about paying it forward and paying it back. Yeah, and, and then Scars is the short film. Scars is the short that film. That shows produced. your story and the story of Hustle 2.0. And it's a great way to see the impact Scars, that you guys are making with that Scars program. Scars is definitely something worth seeing. It's definitely worth seeing. But I would say to even go beyond that, I would say stepping up and volunteering. Stepping up and volunteering, it will move you in ways you couldn't imagine. And people can volunteer with Hustle 2.0. You can volunteer can to go make a difference yourself. Absolutely. You can, working in, in, with the inmates. You and are them. sharing in your strength in your weakness with another in their weakness. You are both facing judgment that you may have against yourself, that he may has against you. And you are both looking objectively at how we can grow as a, as a human humanity how we can grow as, as a race of people, not with differences of religion, differences of creed, color, education, but people who identify with their own scars. They have a story to tell about it. They overcame and they have something to offer. And if that is in your time, if it's in your money, if it's in your own personal experience, you can definitely change lives. You can definitely change lives. It, it matters that we have more people standing up than the object that is in their hand that they toss. Because I teach people, I teach people to know the object that you have in your hand 
and know where you're throwing it. If you throw a pebble in a steel pond, you know that the ripple effect would reach every corner of the pond. If you throw that same pebble in the ocean, you're not gonna get any response. So know the object that you have and know where you're throwing it. And that's what I tell everybody when it comes to their time and their service. Know what you have and know where you're throwing that time and that service. Because you don't wanna be the individual sitting on the recipient side saying, I got nothing out of that. You wanna walk away feeling good. You yeah. wanna walk away empowered in body. And these programs definitely will give you that. Yeah. Definitely give you that. Sarah and I are looking forward to going and being a part of it. And because the people we've talked to are just, it's a mutual exchange, you know? It's, it's uh, uh, just a way of exchanging wisdom, having a connection and getting to know people and absorbing their life lessons, sharing your life lessons, everyone benefits. Everyone it's, benefits. It's not, like, it's not really everyone charity. Benefits. You're going in there for a mutual exchange. The thing that I love the most about Hustle 2.0 is that from the time that the volunteers, from the time that they meet the men and women that's behind these walls in prison, they are expressing empathy. They are opening themselves up in empathy, but they doing away with the judgment at the same time because mass media, the public has put a stereotype on the type of men and women in here. Now these men and women these men and women who have committed some heinous crimes, they are in, in prison. They have committed unthinkable crimes. They are in prison. Guys with tattoos from their head to their knees. We look at that in judgment. But when you stand in front of these individuals and they open their heart, you see the smiles on their face, the love in their heart, these people haven't had a visit in the last two, three years, and you came to see them. They are excited. And all the volunteers, they come in here and they saying, why are you so happy? Why are you hugging me? Why are you high-fiving? It was like, you my family. You came, you came to my house. Mm. You came to my house to see me. That means everything to me. Because that's all these guys want to do. They want to be reconnected with humanity. And yeah. nobody has ever offered them that. CDC has never offered that. Mm. CDC is not going to pay for or support their families coming up to see them. So if they don't have their families, you become their new family. Because from the time them guys come in there and you introduce yourself, them guys cling to you. <laughs> and, and, you know, I would, I would go so far as to say, too, I put out a post recently talking about how giving is selfish. Because when you give, you are doing something good that is gonna make you feel good and you're gonna raise your own self-esteem. You're gonna find your own answers through that giving because giving, I believe, is one of the fullest expressions of self. Mm -hmm. So if someone is struggling with their own issues and having problems getting caught up in you know, whatever it is, drugs, alcohol, work, sex, too much uh, anything, start giving and this is a way to do it and then you're building up your own confidence because you know you're doing something right from your soul, making that connection with another person. And this is a great way to do it. So I, it's, I it can be a healing on both sides. 
Always, and it is. It yeah. definitely is a healing on both sides. I, I take a, a wider approach when I do it. I always want to identify what the problem is because I don't want to give and the give becomes comfort for your problem. That's a good point too. I never want my giving to become, because then I- That could be the next addiction. That could be the next addiction. Yeah, yeah. And I have met people who have done that. And then it leaves me feeling I was taken advantage of. Mm. But that lets me know if I feel that I'm taken advantage of, of me giving of myself, that means I attach something to the gift that I gave. Like you were saying before, right? Yeah. And I have to, I learn about myself. I recognize about myself that I'm attaching to what I'm doing or giving to somebody. So I like to always identify what the problem is because I know my strengths. I know my area of expertise. If you have a weakness that I, 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 I wouldn't even be able to scratch the surface, I need to call in another professional. I need to call in somebody, please come help me do this. And I will give my gift by giving you somebody who can really take care of that. Because I can't. Yeah. I can never go to an alcoholic and truly help an alcoholic because I know nothing about the addiction. Yeah. I would have to go get a former alcoholic and sit up here and say, listen, I know this person is really good, solid person. You know what I'm saying? I vouch for them. Mm -hmm. I'm asking you to allow me to give this to you. Because yeah. this is the best gift I can give you because they can really help you resolve it. And I still feel good about myself. But I gave them the gift that helped them with the problem. Yeah. And not gave them the gift that became the new problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's uh, yeah. what it does. It, it can, can come be a new problem for some people. That's true. Yeah. So where can people find out about how to volunteer with Hustle 2.0? Hustle 2.0, um, they can contact... Uh, Actually, you can go to www.hustle2.0.com or you can .org. So is it hustle20.com? Yeah, hustle2.0. There's actually a dot yes. in there? Yes. Okay. And um, Or is it spelled out point, like hustle2. Point? I'm just thinking no, the spelling for the audio. We'll put the links below the show notes. Okay, too. it's hustle2.0. So. Okay, so got there's it, got points it. in it. You know, okay. the 2.0 is the second chance. It basically represents a legitimate first chance for you to get new tools and new information to do the right thing versus the old tools and the old information you had and did the wrong thing. Yeah. So we're giving you new tools because it's the second chance. But in all actuality, it's a legitimate first chance because you didn't have this information or these tools before. Right, right. So now that you have this new information and these new tools, go out and create a new life for yourself. Go out and create a new career for yourself. Go out and, and uh, reinvest yourself in your community and with your family. Because it teaches you coping skills. It teaches you etiquette. It teaches you soft core skills. It teaches you um, uh, business skills. It's not all about teaching you to be a CEO of your own company. That is the furthest thing from it. Some of the most difficult work is the soft core skills, yeah. teaching you how to make a meaningful apology, teaching you how to reconcile. Mm. Those things are very difficult because it takes, it takes you deep inside you. Yeah. And when people go deep inside themselves, they don't want to call themselves on what they see. 
They want to they, they wanna make little cute names for it. Like, oh, I'm not really that bad there. No, you're horrible, and you need to identify that. Yeah. And people, when, it, when, it, when people go inside, they don't want to take the ownership. And through the Hustle uh, 2.0 platform and all the curriculum it offers, it gets you to take ownership. But it gets you to take ownership, and you present it in a way with I statements. I did this. It wasn't you. When before individuals make the statement, they sit up here and said, you the reason why I went out and robbed the liquor store. Are you kidding me? It makes no sense. You went and made a choice and did this. And you're saying that I'm the reason because you felt like you was going to provide for us. And it teaches you how to make a meaningful apology and wrap it in I statements. It teaches you how to reconcile with your children and make a meaningful apology, mm. you know, and it, te- and these are things that they really need. Love that. You it's know, so powerful. Uh, I believe, and this is work that I'm doing right now with my mentorship and in the communities that I'm working in, uh, currently in Sacramento. And what I am doing is I believe every transformation story has three chapters. It has three. The first chapter is self-reform. It's about what the individual did, how did he achieve it, and over how long of a period to get to where you are now. Mm -hmm. We know where you were, but get to where you are now. The second chapter of this book is is about reconciliation. What have you done or what are you doing to make make right the relationships that were closest to you that you destroyed? Mm -hmm. Children, wife, mothers, grandmothers. You could have been a drug addict and stole from your grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do to make that right? Mm -hmm. What does your reconciliation look like? The third chapter of this story is retribution. What have you done to your society, towards your victims, to to show that your transformation is real? I try to stay away from that reform word. I'm trying to stay away from that. I really do. Your transformation is only real if you satisfy all three of those components. It is truly real when you satisfy all three of those components, because if I if if you're my brother and I victimize you, your story matters. The scar that I left upon you and how you've walked through life with that scar, it matters. And it should matter to me, but I'm out here telling the world about my beautiful story. I'm not telling the world about this story over here of this my oldest daughter is the one that I just did the video with. I just made a video. And my oldest daughter, I felt she was the most exposed to my in and out of prison in my poor choices. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to sit down with her and I wanted to, I wanted her to tell her story, how it affected her so that I can learn from it. Yeah. And I got a lot of valuable things out of it. And the one greatest thing that I walked away from it with 
is I had expectations. I thought when I came home transformed, a new man, that I can just, daddy's home, it's all good. Let's live our life, come on. And it wasn't that story. It wasn't that story because she was like, mm -mm. you need to prove it to me. Makes sense. So I got to wrap my head around, I need to walk on eggshells for you. I need, I'm, keep, I'm still working on my life, getting myself right, getting my strength up under me, my strong legs up under me. But now I got to walk on eggshells for you. So then you have to make a choice as, as a person, as a transformed person. Is this person worth it? Do you really see the value that you claim you say? Do you see that value in them? Because if it is, it shouldn't be a question of what you're going to do. But that story is not being told. And I need that story told. I need that story told because it's going to teach you. It's going to get you to dig in deeper and then share with the world, share with yourself, share with the rest of your family. Yeah. Because the one the one thing that I've learned is I have six children, three girls, three boys, mm. and none of my children all feel the same. They all have different feelings about the man I am today versus the man I was then. They all feel some way different about it and they all express it different. So for me, it's like you have to you, you, you have to put on different personalities in order to incorporate this. Yeah. And it, it's not easy. It's not easy, you know, and one one the one thing that I've learned when I came when I first came home from prison after doing 20 years is that. Society will help you if you speak up. There are those in society will help you if you speak up. But if you sit there and say nothing and make the complaint, you will act out and become the complaint that you're making. And yeah. I've seen so many individuals are like, ain't nobody giving me a job. It's so hard out here. And I'm like, hard for who? It's a vicious cycle. I was like, in my first two weeks out of prison, I had two jobs. Hard for who? I was like, I am not accepting no. I go back and go back and go back. But that's me. And I realized you don't have the components of passion and persistence that I have. I realized that. So what is the problem? How could I help you? Because if the problem is the complaint, you already became the complaint. I can't help the complaint. I can't do anything for the complaint. If you're still on the fence, I can help that because now you can be persuaded. But if you have accepted the complaint as true in your life, you're going to go back to whatever thing that comforts you before. Yeah. People do not understand that security and comfort are two different things. And people constantly do this. They overlap their security and comfort and they become the same. And they're not. The thing that makes you secure is not the thing that should make you comfortable. So true. Yeah. And too many people overlap them. One overlaps the other and now they can't distinguish between the other. Yeah. You think because you get one, you're going to have the other, but not necessarily true. When people constantly, when I see people in society constantly making the complaint they have accepted the complaint as true. They overlapped them. They have accepted the complaint as true when the complaint is not. So what is their efforts? The voice in their head is saying that it's not fair for me out here. I'm not going to get a fair break. It's better for me just to go back to my lifestyle. They go right back to it. Recidivism. 
revolving door. They go right back to jail. The tape needs to be stopped when the tape is first heard. I've spoken to my parole agent about this. You know, if they start giving classes, teaching parole agents, when the parole agents are checking in with these guys, right then and there, right then, as soon as you hear that, you need to report him to a class to get him to identify that before he lets that become his statement. It's not a statement of truth. If you guys saying you want to stop the recidivism, you guys saying you want guys to really prosper, you want guys to be like me, you want guys to be good transformation stories. Okay, this is what you have to do. You guys got to really stand by what you're saying. Stand behind it. Because my path has been a difficult one filled with so many tears and so much heartache. And it has not been easy. I've lost I've lost nearly everything. I didn't lose everything, but I've lost nearly everything. I've lost it. And I had it taken from me because I made a choice. Because that's how I, I choose to accept that in every negative situation, there is a seed of a positive equivalent. And I choose to accept that if you do the work and shut the outside negative, instead of standing there looking at it, you'll see the positive seed inside. You gotta do the work. You gotta peel the negative off. And most people will put it right there and just watch it. You gotta do the work because there's something positive inside that. And that's what I look at. My mother passed away while I was in prison. My grandmother passed away when I was in prison. You know, I look at it and say there was something positive in there. And I find the positive and I hold it dear to me. And it gives me strength. It gives me what I need to be a better man and to help somebody else. So powerful, man. Yes. Thanks for tuning in. If you're as moved by Silverio's story as I was, please share this with your community. Share this on your socials. With everything going on in the world right now, it's so important we get these stories out there so people can see what it's like to grow up in a different environment and that there is hope and it's people like Silverio who are leading the way. We really appreciate you sharing this story and appreciate you tuning in today.